Welcome to Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. When the writer Roberto Carlos Cruz Garcia was growing up, people called him a jerk. Actually, they called him a lot worse than that. We just can't say it on the radio. But he calls himself an unintentional offender. That's part of the inspiration and the subheading for his new book, Sweet Boy, The Unintentional Offender. Roberto has ADHD, and he's on the autism spectrum. But as a kid, he was undiagnosed, and this made him the sweet boy who would sometimes say the wrong thing at the wrong time, even dropping a four-letter word to his poor aunt in Puerto Rico. Roberto learned to navigate his way through the world, and he put that struggle into words. His book is 10 essays of a boy learning to embrace that he was a little different and that that was okay. Also, it made for some cringy, hilarious moments worth writing down. He'll be reading from his book Saturday at Books and Books in Coral Gables. To talk to us about turning his struggle into satire is Roberto. Roberto, welcome to Sundial. Hi, hi. Thank you for having me here. <laughs> I, um, I really, I, I think there's something so interesting about this book. Um, and it kind of starts with that title essay, right? This idea that uh, it's a kid that's, that's learning to kind of find his place and, and people are looking at him and like, what, what's the deal with this kid, right? Like that's... That's kind of under like that, that this idea that this book approaches this as um, helping to understand with ADHD, HDHD, or on the spectrum as as like troublemakers, right? Yeah, exactly. Some some people just don't <clears throat> don't understand. They may see a kid like um like a malcriado or like a bad behaved kid. But malcriado is a perfect word. Yeah, that exactly. I'm sure you heard. Oh, all my life. <laughs> and more and like malcriado. Yeah, with the full name, like Roberto <laughs> Carlos, like we were talking <laughs> yeah, before we were on the air. If you heard the first and second name together, yes, trouble. you're in trouble. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's this idea of of just a kid who happens to see things differently and can just, I, I would describe it as me not having that mouth to brain connection. Oh, that's funny. Like, like it skipped it skipped the processing part and went right to the mouth. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes, you know, it's just kids seeing the world differently and just not being afraid of just opening their mouth and say it out loud the way that they see things. Right. Um, I, I'm curious, like, how did that how did how did the writing of the book help you to to talk through those things because sometimes it you know I know that when I write that's when I help pro- when I first process things that I'm feeling or thinking or even old memories how much how much was there therapy involved in like thinking about yourself and and translating that so to speak well I've <laughs> I've been in therapy since I was 19 years old which is something <laughs> that I recommend everyone yes. to do at least once a year just go the same way that you go to the doctor to check your heart and other organs I think the brain is the most important one that's Especially such good with advice. With all these things about mental health. So I've always, um, as, as an adult, been uh, through therapy just to learn how to control without medication the ADHD and all the hyperactivity and all the other things uh, that come with it. Mm-hmm. Um, because it affects all your life. You know, it affects your family. It affects your work. And, you know, it takes a special kind of village to be around a kid or a human being like that. They have to be very accepting and very open. Um, especially <laughs> to what the things that come out of my mouth, but um, in the case of the of the book, it was basically my. Th- it was more effective than therapy because mm. I had to go to the details. It was not just writing um, an essay. It was basically going into the details, like how I putting myself into that situation and going back to to those days and just 
finding every single detail of my grandparents' house, how people smile, how they dress, and all of these things. And as I was trying to describe these things, my mind started to even get into the feelings of, because I, I just found out that I have a really good emotional memory. So my emotions started, as I was starting to describe certain things, the emotions started to get to me and, and putting myself into that place and understanding how I was seeing myself at that time and the f look in people's faces when they would see me or when I would say things. So it was more like a therapy and introspection and, and an affirmation to myself that I've come a long way. Right. You talked about your village, right? That it takes a, a, a special kind of village to embrace um, to embrace a child and, and encourage them to be how they are. I'm curious what your village was like. I know you write about some of them. Uh, those <laughs> characters play in it. Your your family members, especially, are are strong characters in the writing. But tell me about your village, the the ones that uh, understood or struggled to understand you as a kid. Well, m our village, like every single thing, I think it starts with a foundation and a rock, and I think my. Mm -hmm maternal grandparents were that rock I would say that everything that I am today I owe it to them mm. you you dedicate the book to them yes I do because they are my everything and I see myself everything I do right now as an adult even though my grandmother passed away when I was only eight years old but her mm. everything that she taught me until that point it's still I would say 95% of who I am today Right. There's you know, a like foundation the there. Yeah, exactly. The love of nature, the respect of everything for every single life and, and certain things. Um, but my village, it was my grandparents. Then it was my grandmother had a bunch of kids. She had nine kids. But my aunts, I have four aunts that they are like they were surrounding and they had my favorite people in the world, which are my cousins. Because, you know, we grew up as, you know, as siblings, even though I only have one sister. But I had my extended siblings, which are my cousins, whom I loved. Yeah, same. I have one brother, but I have like 15 cousins, and my, you know, my family background is Cuban, and and so there's that's where your culture lives. That's where your that's where your experiences is, is within that group, right? Yeah, exactly. And as you grow, <clears throat> as you start growing, that foundation and that family and that village starts growing. Mm. You start meeting friends in school that they like something about you. And you take with you my you know i have a group of friends that are with me today that have been with me since i was four years old and wow. they were those kids that embraced the unusual in me when i was four years old right so i want to talk about that about the unusual in you and what was because obviously folks who haven't gotten to the book yet talk to me about what adhd slash being on the autism spectrum what was how did that manifest itself what was what did that look like for you it look well. <laughs> I forget about everything. Even though I I I can write a book about my memories, but I forget about everything. Like you can tell me something today, and as a child, let's just put it into context. When I was a kid, my mother had a daycare center, and she asked me. They were doing you know crafts, arts and crafts, mm -hmm. and she sent me to uh, buy glue to the pharmacy, and I returned with bread from the bakery <laughs> so it's this thing also that it manifests in different ways mm. i consider myself an an introvert extrovert okay because i i i i have to act to be able to feel comfortable in social settings like i don't feel comfortable like hugging people or or arriving at a place i would 
rather just stay in my house, sitting in a room by myself and by the things that make me feel comfortable. But I have to uh, basically challenge myself to go into social settings. I've done theater, I've done stand up and I feel very comfortable on stage. But as soon as I get off stage, I hide in a corner because I feel like I've done the worst thing in the world. Is this thing about... You know, it manifests to me that hyperactivity. Mm -hmm. There are moments in my house, even today as an adult, that I can't stop like dancing or jumping or talking nonstop. Like it, it just fluctuates. That's interesting that you leaned into that, this thing that, that you said scared you, terrified you, right? Like mm -hmm. to go out and to be in public, to be uh, uh, everybody looking at you. But who, who taught you that? Who were some of the people or was it something that came within you to put yourself in situations where you had to be social you know you kind of had to acclimate to those those situations i think it, it had to do with um how comfortable i felt uh, going back to memories of my childhood mm. when i was five years old they were doing the nativity scene and like putting on a play yeah putting on a play and i played a, the donkey oh that carried okay. the virgin mary in my back <laughs> <laughs> for a picture so this donkey loved the attention that day and i realized that oh i can be something else and just basically be social pretending i'm someone else oh like acting literally exactly. putting so on a mask literally that's what i i did like that's how i started connecting with people like you know people will be like oh my god but you're so social and inside i'm like uh no i'm shaking Oh, that's like funny. You put on your going out, your going out character. You you get into characters. So exactly. So even to me, like when I know that family members are coming from Puerto Rico to visit, I know there's going to be a lot of hugging. So I start preparing days in advance <laughs> for all the hugging that will happen because it's not natural. Like if you talk to my sister, my sister yesterday came to my house and she hugs my husband like real affectionate. And she's like, I don't hug you because I know you don't like it. Oh, like so she funny. understands that. And I'm like, good. How do you, how do you prepare? You said you when you just prepare mentally, like mentally. You, I'm like I'm like the hug. You you picture the hug coming. Yeah, I picture it. I I I figure out many scenarios in my head before it happens. So it's it's just it's what I tell them. Like when I was a kid, it felt like you know when people were hugging me, like it felt like a lot of knives Oof. into my body. Like it, it was like hypersensitivity and something that I just I I never liked as much. Right. I'm curious how the writing of thinking about these times and writing it, how did that help you work through it? Tell me what that, just even what that process was like to, to begin to write through some of those things. The thing is, that I don't know if it's my brain or something like that. When I am into something that I really love, mm -hmm. I get the opposite. I get hyper-focused. Oh, interesting. So I would sit on a Sunday and I would sit in my dining table and I would write 5,000 words in a few hours. Wow. That is like a, that's like a New Yorker article uh, so, every Sunday, writing, writing that every Sunday. So it was just that. And I would just go on this, I would call it a trip where I would start seeing and while I'm writing, I'm imagining like the steps in the house, like what my grandmother was doing in the kitchen, like all these things. And I'm just like, I would call it like I'm in a zone mm. and I can't explain it. The same thing when I'm doing theater, like I get into character and I'm in the zone and you can take me, you cannot, when I'm on stage, you cannot distract me. Like we, we used to have um, a dinner theater here in Miami on 57th. And so while you're doing the play, there's people, there's people eating, there's 
glasses breaking. There's so many things going on, people coughing. You cannot distract me. Wow, so you really put yourself in a setting where yeah. you can you can close yourself off. Where, where's that dinner theater? Where, where can people... It used to be uh, 57th and by 8th Street Southwest. Okay. It's called El Junque. It's no longer... Okay, I can pi- I can picture that area well. Yeah. So. Um, and and like was there was there a moment when you were that really was a was a trigger for you in a sense that 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 you learned that you could do that. In other words, because sometimes we think you know if if you don't have any background in ADHD or autism, you think well there's only so much focus that this person can create or can lock into. But that that idea that you could lock into a place and create and you know. <laughs> Who, like, how did you come to that? Um, when I was, uh, before I, I was in second grade. Hmm. In second grade was where everything changed. Oh, interesting. Before that, I was a kid that was just uh, basically using the same word, malcriado, like a kid that couldn't sit down at a classroom and all of that. But my grades were amazing, hmm. you know. But the thing is that I would get bored easily. And I always, comp- I'm very competitive. So if I know that you were all taking a test, I want to be the first one to finish it. Hmm. So I was one of those kids that would finish the classroom homework real quick, and then I would start running around. <laughs> you would uh, turn in the test I was, and start lapping the room? I was the worst nightmare for any teacher. But in second grade, a new teacher whom I'm very grateful for, her name was Mrs. Montalvo. Hmm. She came, she was very young, and she came with a different perspective. Um, before that, there were like really older teachers who had a different kind of of method of teaching students, and they were not prepared for someone like me. Right, they, they, someone sits down in the chair, they teach the lesson, move on to the next exactly. subject. So what she did was that she realized that, and what she did is that she she learned immediately that I love um, art and math, hmm. and that's the only thing that would keep me focused in the classroom. So as soon as I finished my test or the classroom homework, she would have a pamphlet with either some paper for me to draw in or math exercises. Oh, wow. So and she... that's the only thing that would keep me hyper-focused in the seat, which was really weird. When I went to third grade, she talked to my third grade teacher, and she did the same thing. Wow. So And they started working with me until I graduated uh, from the Catholic school. Well, it's it's so amazing to have someone in your life at that point, you know, uh, who can see those things and really is not just interested in getting on with their day, but is really trying to help you reach your full That's potential. why I love teachers. I think teachers are the most amazing people in the world because they can literally make a difference in a kid's life. Our guest today is Roberto Carlos Cruz Garcia. His memoir is Sweet Boy, The Unintentional Offender. He's presenting it on Saturday at Books and Books in Coral Gables. You know, we were talking about uh, Roberto, all the people that kind of made a difference in your life, um, and I wonder, and, and if whether some of these folks, even before you were diagnosed, you know, uh, I, I'm curious how that happened. Like, when was there a diagnosis, and how did that change? How did that change your perception of things? Um, I I went to a psychologist when I was 24 years old because I basically couldn't hold a job. I would get distracted, then I would mm. get tired of the job. I wouldn't find it challenging. I because the situation is that when you when you're in school, you have people that you, part of your village that are there with you. And after this teacher started talking to other teachers, I always had um, 
someone basically understanding me and allowing me to do the best work that I could. I always had amazing grades. I was always in every single extracurricular activity you can imagine. When I went to high school, I was in theater. My senior year, I was in school from seven in the morning until almost 10 in the evening because I had my regular classes. Then from three to five, I had um, advanced math. I took two extra hours of math. And then at night, we had the theater rehearsals. So you always had someone kind of like guardian angel, so someone guiding you. And then you were into things that were naturally interesting to you, math and theater. Exactly. Then after that, I went to the University of Puerto Rico. In the real world, right? Exactly. But I entered through um, a federal program called um, um, SAE. And in this program, I had this. We were the same eighty students. This was based on grades and and academic performance. Mm-hmm. They would pick eighty students every year for that program. So I was one of those students, and they would help you with everything. And you had all the resources for well, your so first you, year. So you still had someone a little bit exactly. to, to to help guide you. Then in my second year of college when I was basically on my own I had no idea what to do with my life mm. and my time and that's when things started going south because you know you don't you know it's not that um, it's just that I was very hard on myself because I always tried to compete with with myself especially you know with my family or background and not having much when we were kids and, and that situation um, you always come to certain situations feeling a little bit less than mm. because of your family situation. But on top of that, having some your brain not working properly and you understanding it, um, it, it can help a lot when it comes to your self-esteem and your self-worth. Um, so then as an adult, I started struggling with many things, having a job. I, I worked on a fast food restaurant for three days after a big accident, which that's for another book. Three days, wait, wait, what, what led to the end, at the end of three days? Well. Um, you had to you had to be able to function at, at a fast food restaurant, especially during the lunch break. Mm-hmm. It it it's a lot of work. I love High fast paced, food. Sure. Uh, so they made me since I couldn't do the burgers or the sandwiches that we were doing fast enough. They sent me to do this um, smoothies that they had. There was like this big line right in front of the smoothie machine, and I forgot to put the top on it. Oh, my God. And things started splashing and splash. All the people that were there from offices, all dressed up. Oh, my so God. So I was fired that same day. It sounds like a like a, like a a uh, situational comedy skit. Like, Yes. Yes. Oh my no, my job, situa- my job stories are really funny. Well, it's interesting because this was... So you didn't have a diagnosis throughout Until I was life. 24 years old. So literally at this time where you no longer have someone... Uh, kind of guy who understands you and is kind mm-hmm. of looking out and guiding for you on a personal level, and now you're on the real world and you don't. Not you even don't, my parents. You don't have a. a, a <laughs> you don't. You don't have a, 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 a nope a textbook on how to how to operate in the real world. Exactly, and and this I got married the first time. I I, I got married very young the mm-hmm. first time, and I. How was, old were you? Uh, huh? How uh, old were you when you got married? I was I think 21. Mm. Oh, really? Like, basically right out of school? Yes. Um, So the situation was that I started struggling with jobs. Because that was my story. Like, you know, it's just this thing where I would get distracted or I wouldn't... I I worked at a TV station once and I went... They finally found this big interview. 
this big uh, Puerto Rican artist, and we went to um, to new to a place in New England to just go there and interview this person. You're gonna record an interview with that person. I recorded the whole interview. I followed him everywhere, and then when I went to the station to edit the video, I forgot to connect the mic. Oh my God! Oh Things no. like that. You know, it's just small distractions that create big problems, and it's just not paying attention or just, you know, just forgetting things or yeah. certain things so and and that sabotages the life that you want to have so i'm curious then having at some point what made you decide that you were going to undergo some kind of testing and how did that change things for you like how did your life begin to to change in a positive way after that well i went to this um psychologist in connecticut and he started talking to me about all of those things in the first five minutes i would say he looked at me he's like you're very distracted you're not even looking at me you're looking at the paintings on the walls and I'm like, yeah, because if I see color, that's the first thing that my eyes go to color. Mm. Like, it's just, it helps me. So he started talking to me and doing a lot of exercises, and he started doing different testings. And he basically told me, you know, this is what you have, and this is how we're going to work with it. And he started teaching me how to breathe, which I didn't realize how important breathing is. He showed me literally how to breathe. Interesting. So even, like, basic things on how to how to approach uh, like the way that you had to operate in the world, basically. Exactly. So it's just learning how to breathe um, and just finding jobs that are suited to me, not just finding a job because I want a job. Mm. He told me, you're not ready to go into a certain type of situations because you, 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 don't, you're, you didn't prepare yourself. You didn't have the tools to be able to do this. So I, You're not ready to make milkshakes at McDonald's or whatever. <laughs> no, I, I went back to restaurants. I loved working at restaurants because it's fast-paced, meaning restaurants as a server. It's fast-paced and it's like acting. Mm. You know, I had a, a restaurant manager that would say that um, the floor is our, our stage. So I was always acting and I treated uh, being a server as, you know, it's my... My That's act, your role. My role. Yeah. And the funny thing is that I took it so seriously. Like I would go to a table and start talking to you in a Spanish accent. <laughs> and then I would go to the other one and talking with a Colombian accent. And then I would talk with a Puerto Rican accent, like a New Yorker accent. And I would start playing with those things. Uh, at one point I dyed my hair blue. Like I, I literally, I treated it as if I was acting, but I was very successful at that. You inhabited that role. But how long could I be working at a restaurant when I had other ideas of the things that I wanted for my life. So I had to do a lot, a lot of work. Yeah. How did things begin to change for you then um, as far as when you understood, you know, what your particular path was? In other words, the things that you had to do to 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 get to the results you wanted. You know, once you had talked to the therapist who says, you know, hey, these are some things we need to work on to get you to where you want to go. Having that kind of guide, how did that begin to change things for you? Well, for the first time, it helps you understand who you are. Yeah. And it starts, you start going back into your childhood and start thinking, you know, the things that would trigger certain behaviors. And you start understanding going back. And I started writing. And that's when the mm -hmm. writing of the stories started. He told me, start writing. Because oh, I would wow. tell him histories about my family. And he would be laughing during the whole 45 second, uh, 45 minute session. And then he would be like, you should just have, you just have to write that. Oh, that's so great. And that's great. how I started writing that's all the so stories. Because as a child, I used to write short stories and things like that. But like writing about my personal life and my stuff, that's when I started. 
you know, the writing becomes so important then in mm-hmm. understanding who you are. And, and you write, you know, there's 10 essays here, and you write not just about, you know, being this kid who is malcriado, misunderstood mm-hmm. as, as being a bad, a bad kid, a troublemaker kid, but you also write about... Um, about your story of coming out, mm-hmm. um, you're you're a gay man, and um, you there was you tell this story about a girl who threw herself at you, and you told her that uh, you know that you were gay, and she said she would keep your secret, yeah. and something about that word kept you from telling anyone that you were gay for ten years. You lived mm-hmm. ten years. That's what I thought, yeah. So what were those ten years like? Where you're among those things that you're working out? Well, it's it's. It's, people need to understand that, you know, at least in my case, I don't know anyone else's story, I was born like that. You know, when I was three years old, I was watching in Puerto Rico, Noche de Gala, I saw Menudo <laughs> on stage, and I'm like, oh my God, I like that boy. Like, it's something, and I still remember that day. I was three years old, you know. I saw, you know, Ricky Melendez with his afro, and that was it. I'm like, oh, yeah, I like this guy. So it's something that, you you're born with and uh, the funny thing about this is that i was born into a house where my father was a baseball player oh is that right yes so it's this so thing. Ma- macho latino culture exactly you're, you're so, born in puerto rico yeah obviously. so the situation with that is that um you you start seeing in his conversations and the way that he interacted with his friends you start seeing that you're going to be the butt of a lot of jokes even by your father Right. So you start acting and pretending you are something. So you're basically you learn you learn how to lie from a really young age mm. and you're living a life that it's not yours. Oof. And that's when when you're growing up and you start understanding yourself and this psychology was very important to me because he's the one who who opened that door even though I was married to a woman at the time. He opened that window for me to be able to start, that I was young enough to start living who, you know, as who I was. Right. So it took me 10 years of, you know, I got divorced. I dated another girl and all of that. But in my head, it was just this finding the right moment for me to do it. Right. You were still talking yourself into figuring out. Yeah, I'm fully embracing who you were. Exactly. And they were, I, I, that's why I call that essay coming out take one because I tried <laughs> to come out like 10 times, which that, that should be another book. <laughs> and, and, and I think this is the, this is the, not the funniest one because there are many other situations where I'm like two days a day, two days a day. And then we had a car accident on the way. Like it's things like that, that <laughs> oh, makes no. it funny. I'm like, I shouldn't be like this Catholic guilt. I'm like, maybe this is God telling me not to do it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, you you get through um, a, a lot of those stories where you 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 really come kind of come to terms with with um, with who you are and those things. So, when did you start to decide that which stories were going to make it? In other words, which ones were you going to put in order that were going to tell the story of what your life had been like to that point? I I wrote about 16 and this this I wrote a lot before but this I started organizing these essays and writing these essays for my master's thesis mm. so that's I wrote 14 but then I took out four that I thought were not it, it it's just it's the book is inspired in my childhood and there are some characters that are close to me that are part of the stories. 
even though I I would say they're fictional characters because there's a blend of different people in my family. But I didn't want to write um, essays or include essays that would make my family, even if I didn't have a great relationship with my mother or my father, I didn't want to put them in a really bad place because I don't think anyone, especially as young as they were, know how to, you know, no one is born knowing how to be a parent. Like it's it's difficult, and and I think that I was I would I would be doing a disservice just talking and putting my parents in a certain situation because I would be very ungrateful. Because even though my relationship with them, I am here because of who they were and who they are, and and you know I everything I am today it's thanks to them. Right. So there were essays that w- I would think that would put them in a not a good light. So I just kept them outside yeah you did something interesting i think that uh you talked about because there's a podcast that goes with with the the book and it's releasing in pieces but you mentioned in there that um this is you mentioned you're you're speaking yourself in your third person as a character you're like this is a version of me Mm -hmm. and you're in and it's this um this compromise that you made between being uh full fiction and non-fiction but there's the reaching for a truth right Mm -hmm. using those things to reach for a truth yeah. No. And and I think that it's at the end of the day, it's still my. If it's true, it's fiction, nonfiction. Mm. It's still my story. Mm-hmm. But I just didn't want it to to put anyone else in my family who are my village, as we said in the beginning. It, I didn't want it to put anyone in a really bad light. Right. I just wanted to just make it light, but make people understand that there's that there's funny moments in our lives, and I think highlighting those without taking away the emotional stuff. I think that life, it's just like that. You, you mentioned your grandparents, and I thought that was so interesting because I think that there is a level of, they're a level removed, right? They always say that the grandparents enjoy the kids more than the actual parents because they can just give them back, mm-hmm. right? And they see themselves removed, right? Um, and I'm curious how, what, what was your relationship like? You mentioned your mom and dad, that it was difficult at times, and that's why your grandparents were such a, an important role in your life. Well, I just have to shout out my I my oldest stepson just gave me the most beautiful uh, granddaughter. So I'm a grandpa. Oh wow! Congrats. Her name is Emma, the most beautiful baby in the whole wide world. And I'm not just saying that because I have seen myself criticizing ugly babies at one point. <laughs> um, so uh, I see things differently because at this point in my life, I'm seeing Emma. She's two months now, and this morning, all I was playing in my house while I was working were children's songs Mm. and it's this thing of reminding myself my grandmother always singing to us Mm. this songs you know and and that's what i want to be for her you know it's i would love to give her all the lessons that my grandparents gave me about you know you don't kill a spider because the spider will eat the mosquitoes if you kill the spider then there is going to be a lot of mosquitoes and nobody wants mosquitoes Mm. Things like if you have roaches in your house, it's because you didn't clean well because <laughs> roaches have a purpose. Like every single thing had a purpose. Right. And every single <clears throat> thing was a lesson, you know, in her. I think that my grandmother had like a second grade schooling, mm-hmm. but she was so wise. And, and there's something about being that little removal where you're not busy raising the kid that you can impart a little wisdom, right? Yeah, yeah and you can just return it when... They have to change the diapers because I don't change diapers. <laughs> <laughs> what about for like? Do, does it did it make you see your own upbringing with your own mom and dad differently? You said your dad was 
a baseball player, bien macho, very very Latino, very uh, in yeah. in a male role, right? Um, and uh, yeah, and I co- I <coughs> I come from a very dysfunctional family, and I think everyone's family is dysfunctional. I come from a house where my father had a a female addiction. He was addicted to women, and my <laughs> mother was addicted to alcohol. Oh wow! So that's where I was born. So it's it's this thing where where you are able to to see now as an adult how far I've become and how I didn't become a victim of the situation because I've seen different stories. Like, you know, I don't drink not because I don't like to drink. It's because I am very cautious and very aware that that exists in my life and I know how much pain it caused me when I was a kid. So it's this thing. Everything to me has been a lesson, mm. basically. You know, you, you when, when you come from a, a home like that, you have two roads. Either you... You know, you go far away from the situation and remove yourself from the situation or you continue that same pattern. And then me and my sister, we just broke the patterns. Right. Our guest today is Roberto Carlos Cruz Garcia. His memoir is Sweet Boy, The Unintentional Offender. He's presenting it on Saturday at Books and Books in Coral Gables. Uh, Roberto, so you write this book and you're obviously you've. You've wrestled with things, not just wrestled, but just kind of pick through, right? And and you kind of hold up your life and you see it from different directions as as someone who was growing up who wasn't uh, diagnosed until much later with ADHD and, and on the autism spectrum. So in the writing of it, as you put it out into the world and as it reaches some of the people that are uh, that lead to, you know, the characters in, in this book, how do they receive it? How is it received by the folks that, that formed you? I have no idea because they, they have not read the book. Oh, no. Um, well, oh, my sister no. did. My sister did. My sister read the book. And she's she's the one who approves um, what what I say about my family. Oh, that's She's the one that tells me, like, this is, I think this is too much. She's your first reader. In other words, you're, she's your, your first, uh, your editor, your censor. Yes. <clears throat> yes. When it comes to family sensitivity. Interesting. She's like, uh, nope, that doesn't go well I did I wrote um, the, me- the the stuff that I wrote with my psychologist mm-hmm. I I moved back to Puerto Rico I was living in Connecticut at the time I moved back to Puerto Rico and I did um, a, a stand-up comedy based on those notes really so that was the first outlet for this this kind of examining of your life exactly so I was reading my family stories and people were cracking up and then my sister was telling me uh, when it finished, she told me everyone were laughing and they were saying, this guy, he exaggerates everything. They don't know that he was worse. <laughs> so she's the one that va- who validates everything that I write. And she's like, oh, you forgot to add this. Because she's two years older than me, even though she thinks she looks like 10 years younger than me. But she's two years <laughs> older than me. And she's the one who's like, you know, uh, you forgot this. Interesting. So she acted as as editor for you a little bit of like a like a sensitivity reader. Right? Yeah, exactly. And, then, <laughs> and she cried and she laughs and she would text me while she was reading it, like, "Oh my god, this is so emotional." It's real interesting to me that that comedy was the first outlet for it because that's the bulk of the story is you have to laugh, right? Yeah, but when I was writing the when I was writing the original thesis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, as part of the thesis, I had to do, uh, well, at this point, it was supposed to be a live read of the book, mm. but we couldn't do live because, you know, COVID. So we did, I did a Zoom meeting and I invited friends of mine to it. And I started, 
um, reading and I had to read a few essays and then I would have to have um, a QA. and a mm. And I have a friend of mine, her name is Aleli Vasquez. She's the most amazing principal in the whole white world, school principal, educator, and she did her doctorate thesis on trauma. Mm. And while I thought that I was writing a funny book with funny family stories, all her questions were about trauma. How interesting. And I, w- I, and I had only written at the time four essays. And so her feedback, did that change yes. the writing? Mm-hmm. In, in what ways? I have always been afraid of opening up about certain things because I never wanted to be seen as less than. Hmm. Like as I was writing on my, on my blog, I wrote an essay about the importance of being smart and how smart is not cool anymore. Hmm. I, I used to hide as much. I used to act really dumb. And I tried to always, you know, just to be able to connect to people right at this age after i turned 40 i'm like you know what i'm very smart i'm sorry like you need to read like because <laughs> you know when i was a kid i used to hide that a lot you yeah. know and it's this thing that it, i mean a lot of kids have that that can connect to that i want to say that lin-manuel miranda has like a a little lyric about being a kid you know and and you know being caught mm-hmm. with a book and the other you know, tough kids kind of slapping them in the back of the head, you know. Exactly, and you just try to connect because at the end of the day, when you're in school, you just want to find, you know, a group of friends at least to survive the school years. So I did that. um, I hit a lot of things. So now as an adult, I just don't care. So writing this, she started pointing out things about my trauma that I had no idea existed, and that's one of them. And her telling me those things it allowed me to just go into those deep emotions and start writing about every single thing I always tried to hide. Oh, so those parts that you might have skipped over, you then you exactly. dug deeper into them. Exactly. How do you think that someone who, you know, I mean, because someone who, who has ADHD or, or who is on the spectrum or someone who's parenting, I think that's more important, someone who's parenting a kid like you that that had ADHD, has ADHD or is on the spectrum, how do you think this story can be helpful to them, inspirational to them? Because I, I think that it could. I, I think that there are, not everyone has the tools to handle a kid like this. Hmm. I, I don't think I have them, to be honest with you. Hmm. But I do think that parents these days need to be equipped and try to find resources as soon as they start noticing different behaviors. You don't have all the answers, but there are so many resources right now available for parents. Yeah. And I was not born during the digital era. I was born, you know, <laughs> you know, before <laughs> during the, the dial-up era. Yeah, exactly. Like I was <laughs> during the cassette era. So it's it's this thing of yeah. of making sure that you read everything, all the studies that are coming out when it comes to tablets and ADHD cell phones and ADHD the mind of the child are not equipped to handle all of that information I think Mm -hmm. that there are some motor things that should be you know that are very important that we're forgetting and we're replacing for that like playing outside climbing on a tree painting drawing remember those restaurants when you would come in they would give you a paper and a crayon and you were so happy now these days kids don't care about that and they don't understand the importance of 
writing with your own hand, how that helps develop the brain, singing with your kids. I think that these days we're all, even adults, tied to a tablet or a phone. Mm. And that takes away time for us to spend with our kids and notice these differences in other learning. Also, when it comes to schooling, it's very important. Because we don't want to, in schools this day, they just paint all the kids with the same brush. And we don't all learn the same way. Right. Like, for example, I cannot take um, a test, a multiple choice test. It just did. I can't. It, it when I used to take multiple out. choice tests, I would have someone assisting me on the side. Hmm. And they would ask me the question, and I would just tell them the answer and elaborate. And they would pick the right answer. Because I'm one of those that if you give me a question, I can write you an essay. Right. You over-examine. You're exactly. I am not the multiple choice question type of person. Interesting. So. You, you mentioned that you have stepkids and, yes. and now a step a step grandchild. Yes. I don't know. From your own experience, did any of that help when you were helping to raise or having stepchildren in your life um, and understanding that, that kids are, every kid is wired differently? Well, they're, they're adults. And, and when I met them, mm. the two oldest were adults. Mm. Um, but the three of them are very different. But they're very capable, they're very talented, and they're very smart. But each of them, it's completely different. And I think that if I would have, I would have been the teacher of each of them, I would have handled each of them a little bit different. Because mm-hmm. you got the more analytical, you got the more artistic, you got, you know, so they're all different and they shouldn't be subjected to the same type of learning. Right. You know, and also it has to do with also the expectations of the parents. I, I think that one of the things and I, I've been writing about that is th- are the parents' expectations and the meaning of society of what success is. I think that success is measured today by how much money you have. Mm. And that takes away from that kid who's an artist, who's a painter, who's starting and finishes an amazing painting. He'd sell it for $30, but that's success as well because that's what he was intending to do. Mm. And I think that when we start taking away you know this uh, adding this meaning you know to certain words that are overused in society i think it helps kids also feel that they're worth it right i'm curious how coming to those realizations then helps you to create now right because you still Mm -hmm. you're obviously still writing this is your book you're but you're also are you still acting are you doing plays like how how is kind of embracing that helping you to develop your own creative endeavors um i i i'm one of those i am right now i work i have a nine-to-five job okay then i have the book then i am working on my phd i'm only one year away from finishing a phd wow congrats so it's it's a lot of time but when I have my time off, for example, I start, I'm very artistic and I need to have something to do and to create. So I've been learning how to do stained glass. I've been learning how to, you know, do um, digital painting, like little digital painting. Mm. So it's these things I'm always trying to do something. I think it has to do with my ADHD. I can't just be not doing anything. I have to always be doing something. You can deeply focus on one thing and then change gears. And, and change gears to the other. And you have to do something else. Now, before I used to start a lot of things and I wouldn't finish them. Hmm. What 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 helped you do that? What helped you then come back and, and be able to finish things? Like you were saying, like that was such an obstacle in your in your the job. Second marriage. <laughs> <laughs> Someone who cares about you and they keep you accountable. Yeah. 
They're like, you haven't finished this. You are not doing this. Like, he he understands me so much that he challenges me. He makes me, he has all the patience in the world, especially when I get really hyper and I want to talk a lot. He's like, oh my God, please turn it off. <laughs> like, so it's... So you still have someone in your life who's helping them. Exactly. In my village. Direction. I have my family. I have my kids. I have my granddaughter. Beautiful. Emma. Uh, so it's it's this thing that I still have my village that they understand me and they accept me for who I am. Right. And and how did he come into your life? Uh, and, and, and in what ways did he understand you in ways that you hadn't since maybe a, a long time? He came into my life thanks to the theater and he understands me because he has a lot of patience. <laughs> I married into a Cuban family, so I call my family Cuban Ricans. So we, we have a different um, cultural background, but it's pretty similar. But he has a lot of patience. Like, Dos alas del mismo ave, right? Exactamente, right? yeah. So he's, he has a lot of patience. That's all I have to say because to be around me, you need a lot of patience. I'm curious with the process of writing this book. How long did you, were you writing it? Six months. Six months. So in the process of writing it, you know, kind of what you learned about yourself. Because obviously you come through a creative element. You come on the other side. How are you different now than when you started writing it? I don't apologize anymore. Hmm. And I don't hide who I am. I am very smart. I am I am a homosexual man. I am married. I am talented. I am distracted. I screw up a lot. You know, every single day at least five times. Like I am I forget about things. Like I accept every single thing and whoever's with me has to accept the whole package. Before I used to hide everything. Oh my god, I forgot. Like you know, like, I have to hide this. I have to, like, I was always nervous about things because I want to. I wanted to seem perfect and I didn't want people to continue at this age, look at me as if I was less than because mm. I was focusing on the things that I didn't have, the things that I was not doing well. But then I realized with this book, oh, my God, I do so many other things. Why do I focus on the ones that I'm not successful at? Let me just focus on the ones that I do really well, and that's what I'm doing right now. Right. I don't care about... You know, if I forget about something, you know what? I'm not even apologizing anymore. I'm like, you know what? I forgot. Is that, it's, that's the, obviously the lesson you want from this. Is that something that you hope that people will take away from it when they read it? Yes, I think that, yeah. I, I think that that is very important acceptance mm -hmm. for people like me that are adults now that they had to apologize a lot hmm. when they were kids. But I think that for everyone else to understand that there's a complete different way of growing up and a completely different way of behaving and that doesn't make it wrong you just have to learn how to navigate it especially for your young parents these days with all the distractions they need to pay attention to every single thing your child is doing to make sure you avoid hurting them more for example going back to my father being the baseball player like he hated mannerisms, he hated so many things because they were not macho enough. Hmm. So it's these things that, you know, you think that you're educating your kid, but in the end you're just hurting them and making them act as something they're not. There'll be there'll be people in the audience when you're reading this weekend. Uh, is there anybody special gonna be in there? And uh, My family, they're my friends. What is that? Are you, how are you thinking about that? I don't think about that. They know me. <laughs> they expect the worst, so they won't. <laughs> I think they expect the worst, but they're not. They're not getting that. Well, folks, show up for the show. Uh, uh, Roberto Carlos, thank you so much for spending no, the hour thank with you. us.
Our guest today is Roberto Carlos Cruz Garcia. His memoir is Sweet Boy, The Unintentional Offender. He's presenting it on Saturday at Books and Books in Coral Gables. And that's Sundown for Tuesday, October 31st. Leslie Obay Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News, and Katie Munoz is our director of live programming. Peter J. Mertz is WLRN's VP of Radio, and our engineer is Richard Ives. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program. Just search for WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up tomorrow on the program, the local music duo Afro-Beta has performed in some of the biggest musical venues around the world. They join us to talk about their Emmy-nominated documentary about their first trip to Cuba as Cuban-Americans. I'm Carlos Frias. Spooky vibes only. Ah, 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 ah. WLRN Public Media.